Check. Okay, are we recording now? Can y'all hear me? Can you give me a thumbs up if you can hear me online? Okay, good. Uh, I think I turned off there by accident. So anyway, we have, uh, as I've told you a number of times, I have two teenage boys, and uh, those teenage boys um, uh, are often the, the source of much entertainment, uh, as well as uh, stress sometimes. And one of the things that, uh, you know, we have to tell them over and over again, I can't tell you how many times we've done this, is uh, if, if they have dishes, they'll leave it in the sink. And, and somehow there's been this uh, uh, environment fostered in our house where they think they magically will disappear somehow. And so we have to tell them over and over again, when you, when you leave dishes in the sink, what you're doing is you're saying, uh, you know, someone else is going to do this for me, right? And so what we tell them, we say, no, you have to do it yourself. And sometimes, sometimes we even say, if there's dishes in the sink, just clean them, whether you made the mess or not, just because you're part of this family now. So go ahead and do that. And, and what do they do? Sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll joyously do it, right? Never. Never. Every time, every time it's like, you know, and, and then there's, they, they roll their eyes. Now, why do you think they do that? Why do you think they, when we ask them to do something like that, clean up after yourself or even clean up after someone else, why do you think they, they moan like that? What do you think causes that? What's, it's not fair. Who said that? That's the battle cry of the teenager. It's not fair. <laughs> It's not fair. It's not fair because why? You're asking me to do something and, and you're preventing me from doing the very thing that I want to be doing, whatever that is. And so it's the same thing when I ask them to, to pick up their, their shoes or their sweatshirts or, or whatever. When, when, they, when they moan the fact that I'm asking them to do that, they're, they're saying, ah, I'll do it fine, but you're preventing me from doing the thing I want to do. You, you might almost say that their heart is hardened a little bit to the fact that I'm asking them to do something that's preventing them from doing the thing they want to do. Uh, and again, this doesn't just happen with kids. There's, there's a, I've, I've noticed this behavior even in myself, that sometimes uh, when something is repeated to me so often uh, that I, I get my heart hardened toward whatever the topic is, and I'll tell you what the latest one is. Do you all know what this is? Have you seen these things? This is called a slow pour coffee maker. It looks like a coffee maker from circa the Revolutionary War, but it is all the rage. And, uh, and I think, again, I, I've got my coffee situation set. I've made my investment and I'm good with what I've got. And I think what, what, what I get so almost hardened <laughs> to these things is that, no, 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 look, look, let me tell you how it works. You pour coffee slowly over the grounds and it goes through a filter and into the bottom of the chemist's flask here. Isn't that exactly the way my drip coffee maker works? You pour water slowly into the top. And so anyway, I, and, and the more I hear about it, the more I get, I don't, I, I don't wanna hear about it anymore. I don't wanna, and now some of you are probably saying, oh no, but, but you can taste it. No, don't, don't wanna hear it. <laughs> I've made up my mind. I've made up my mind. This is just another thing that they're, they're trying to get us excited about that they'll even charge you extra for at the, the coffee shop. You wanna spend a couple extra bucks? We'll pour it slowly for you. <laughs> okay, so again, uh, let me see again if I can use that uh, as to serve as the backdrop to, to what we're, we're talking about here. Uh, again, we, tend, we have this tendency, remember what I'm talking about here is, is that it's not necessarily that you're uh, fighting a battle of right or wrong here. You're, you're, you predispose yourself to harden your heart to something because you have your mind so made up one way that you're not even listening to what's going on over here anymore because again, 
I just want to do the thing that I want to do. I just want to do that thing, okay? Now, again, let that serve as the backdrop for our hard saying today. We're talking about a hard saying that is actually self-identified as a hard saying in the scriptures. And to really get a sense for, for what this hard saying, you're going to have to put yourself in the shoes of a first century disciple, because as much as they were exposed to Jesus, I mean, they literally followed him around. They saw the signs that he did with their own eyes. And despite all that, they, they still walked away every time, time and time again from Jesus saying, I don't get it. Maybe they didn't say it out loud, but they were still like, uh, uh, just missing it. And sometimes you can even hear the exasperation in Jesus's voice saying, oh, don't you guys get it? Aren't you seeing it? And this is what we're, we're, uh, we're going to see in today. And again, you have to realize from the, the perspective of that first century disciple, the reason they weren't getting it was why? Because their hearts were hardened to something that they had already made up their mind about. This is what I want out of you, Jesus. And so whatever else you're going to give me, I'm, I'm not going to hear it because I so want this to be the case, Jesus. And we see this time and time again. Now, the hard saying that we're going to look at today comes from uh, John chapter 6, verse 53. And it says this, John 56, verse 53. And again, uh, for those of you that are, are at home, uh, you may want to get your, your fingers warmed up because we're going to be flipping all around today, but we're going to start in John chapter 6, verse 53, and it says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Now, again, if I were to ask some of you what this verse is talking about, I bet a substantial number of you would make reference to the Lord's Supper. To Holy Communion, but here's the surprise about this verse, and I made reference to this uh, for those of you on our email list. Uh, I made uh, yesterday, I sent it out teasing the topic. This passage isn't about the Lord's Supper. Now, there are applications that we can make when observing the Lord's Supper that, Supper that tie into this, but uh, this isn't specifically referring to the Lord's Supper in its original context, okay? Now, furthermore, check this out. This is a little further down in verse 60 of the same chapter. So John 6, 60, this is what the disciples had to say about this phrase or this saying that Jesus said. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. This is the most appropriate verse we've ever looked at in this series. Who can listen to it? And this is why I say it's self-identified as a, as a hard saying. The disciples seem to agree that this is a hard saying. Now, listen to Jesus's response to it. You can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus's voice here because they don't get it. We're missing the point. He says, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus is telling them, you don't get it. You're missing it. There, there's a sense in which the Jews and disciples are even thinking, well, we get this from verse 52 in the same chapter. Jesus, are you speaking literally here? Is this what you're asking us to eat flesh and drink blood? Is that what you're asking us? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, I'm not speaking literally here, but you're still missing the point. Okay. And now uh, you know that, uh, that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He doesn't expect us to eat real flesh and drink the real blood of Jesus. So what's he talking about? 
again, I already told you this isn't about communion, so what's he talking about? Does anyone have any ideas before we jump into this? What is he talking about when he's speaking about eating flesh and drinking blood? Does anyone have a, a shot in the dark at this? Anybody? Is, is anyone here, um, has anyone here read this verse before? And, and when you came across it, did most of you think of us talking about maybe communion? Is that maybe what you were thinking? Okay, fair enough. I, I, I'm not going to put you on the spotlight anymore. We're just going to get right into it. Because again, even as I read through this myself and I was you know, making notes and everything, I'm like, oh, this, is so, this is so good. This is so good. And again, context. If there's one thing you've gotten out of this series, I hope that's the first thing you understand. To really understand something, you got to have context. And this is the one that you got to go back a little further and then back a little further more. And then really to see the whole picture, you got to go back even more, okay? Uh, the difficult passages of scripture, you have to use the, the, the passages that aren't as difficult to interpret the ones that are difficult, you know, that's the first rule of, of uh, biblical interpretation. So the first stop we're going to make in our Bibles to understand this passage is all the way back in Exodus. Okay, we're going to go all the way back to Exodus and make, uh, and, and make sense of something by using Exodus. Uh, so back then, what, what is the context of the book of Exodus? Does anyone want to offer up an answer for that? As we open up the book of Exodus, what is going on? What's happening in Exodus? God's people were slaves, and then what happened? They're set free. They're leaving. They're exiting, okay? They're exiting. The word exodus is a descriptor for, for, uh, for the exit from Egypt that God's people would partake in. They're, they're leaving their life of slavery behind, right? Uh, Moses, as instructed by God, told Pharaoh, let my people go, but he didn't stop there. That's what we always remember, let my people go. There's more to it. He says, not just because it's the right thing to do, Pharaoh. He says, let my people go, according to God. God is saying, let my people go, that they may serve me. All right, that's the part we always forget. Let my people go, that they may serve me. Not you, Pharaoh. Now, you have to see, you have to see the New Testament application here. Uh, so don't, don't miss this. The whole Bible, as I've told you many times, the whole Bible is a story about Jesus. Okay, so look at the broad picture of Exodus. Look at the narrative of Exodus. The people of God leaving behind their enslavement, passing through the waters of the Red Sea, and they emerge on the other side, a new creation. Now, what I've just described for you is the same thing that I could describe about your redemption, your story of redemption. You were enslaved to sin. You passed through the waters of baptism, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, and you emerge on the other side, a new creation, okay? Where God is just teasing you with a story in the Old Testament that this is really the picture of your, of your redemption, enslavement, cleansing of the Holy Spirit, freedom, and you emerge on the other side, a new creation, okay? But that's the context. It's as if Jesus Christ told you, he spoke to your sin and said, let my people go that they may serve me. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So, so that's the context of Exodus and how it applies to, to your redemption. And as the people left their old life behind, they wandered through the desert. And by what means were they sustained in the desert? By what means? Manna. Where did that manna come from? Came from heaven. Bread literally fell from the sky. Okay. 
Literally bread fell from the sky. What, what sustained the people of God? What keep, kept the people of God alive was the bread that came down from heaven. So if you're a student of the Old Testament, or uh, in Jesus's time, it was just the scriptures, bread that fell from the sky is a pretty significant event in the Old Testament. You know what that means. That should be ringing alarms in terms of when we're speaking about bread falling from the sky, from the heavens, okay? Bread is symbolic of life. It's what sustains you. And, and this is what's so hard about getting old and having to curb your diet is that you're now told that bread, bread, which is so wonderful. Now you're being told, oh, carbs, watch out. So, so don't eat bread. I like to think the Lord wants me to eat bread for as often as he, he mentions it in the Bible, okay? That's not strong theology, so don't quote me on that. But, but bread is an important symbolic item in the Bible. And, and with our knowledge and the image of, of what we have of, of bread in the Old Testament, we're going to now fast forward to the New Testament, okay? The passage we read today, our hard saying, comes from John chapter 6. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what happened in John chapter 5, okay? It was in the chapter before where we can read about Jesus healing a man by a pool called Bethesda. There was this man who had been, uh, he'd been an invalid, it says, for 38 years. That's what we read in verse 5 of, of chapter 5. And instead of glorifying God that the man who had been sick for 38 years just picked up his mat and walked away, the Jews that had witnessed this began criticizing for doing this on the, on the Sabbath, you know, of all things. And this led to a long dialogue that Jesus had with the Jews. It's a long dialogue where Jesus makes numerous claims about himself. And in fact, one of the claims he makes that is so audacious, the Jews who, who heard it began to rage. They wanted to kill him. What was the claim that he made? This is John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay? Write that down in your brain, that in this moment, He's claiming equality with God, and to be equal with God is to be God, okay? Really important, because again, of all the prophets, the judges, the priests, the kings that came before Jesus in the Old Testament, not one of them ever made any claims to be equal with God. Not one of them made a claim to be God. Now, did the disciples pick up on that? I promise you they didn't. They didn't catch it. They weren't getting this. They didn't grab the significance of that. Let's see what happens next. Remember, Jesus is, is claiming equal authority with God, God himself. And the disciples, <laughs> okay, uh, what happened next? Uh, uh, the Jews are mad that, that he healed a man on the Sabbath and, and that he equated himself with God. What was everyone else thinking? Everyone else was thinking, oh my word, that man just told a crippled man of 38 years to get up off the floor and walk, and he did. That's amazing. That's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And they begin to follow Jesus around because they wanted to see what he might do next. Nevertheless, Jesus gets into a boat, goes on the other side of, of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd still followed him. They still followed him. How big of a crowd that followed him at this point? We're told once we get, that, uh, get to John chapter 6, you have a heading at the top of your Bibles uh, for John chapter 6. What does it say there? Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Quick question. Jesus feeds the 5,000. What was on the menu that day? Fish and what? Bread. Now your, your ears should be tingling when you hear the word bread. Okay? Bread. 
didn't we just have a discussion about the significance of bread in the Old Testament about seven minutes ago, right? Isn't that what we said? How many of you are going to be surprised when I say that that has something to do with what was mentioned in the Old Testament, that they're connected? Are you surprised by that at all? I hope not. I hope not. This is John chapter 6, verse 5 and following. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, I love this dialogue here, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said that to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. <laughs> Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be, uh, be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what, uh, they are for, uh, but, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. The men sat down uh, about 5,000 in number. Again, this is more than 5,000 because they're just counting the men here. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated and also the fish. As much as they wanted, as much as they wanted, okay? Again, does that remind you of anything? As much bread as they possibly could ever want or need. Again, does that remind you of something? Exodus. It should remind you of Exodus. Okay. Answer me this, just to refresh my memory. Who was it that provided life-sustaining bread from heaven back in Exodus? Who did that? God. God did that. God himself provided the bread. Are you starting to see the significance behind the feeding of the 5,000 plus here? There's always a purpose to the, the miracles that Jesus performed. Always a purpose. The miracles performed were never, ever, 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 ever for the sake of convenience. Oh, there's a mob of people hungry. What should we do about it? And Jesus says, stand back. I'll handle this, right? No, what's the message behind the miracle? It was God himself who provided bread for the people of, of, in, in Exodus, God's people in Exodus. What's the message that Jesus is communicating and providing bread here? Remember what we were just talking about in it's the bread, the bread is, is through him. So it's in the, in the Old Testament, it's bread directly from God. Right. Now the bread comes through Jesus, and Jesus uses the disciples to pass out. That's right. Now listen to this. Remember, it was God himself who gave him, gave, provided the bread in, in, uh, in Exodus. How did we start off with John chapter 5? Jesus was making claims of what? I am God. Who provides bread to people to sustain them? God. God himself does. Okay, God himself provides bread. It's only me. I, it's as if Jesus is saying, ding, ding, ding. I, I'm God. I'm God. Okay, it's only God himself provides bread. Now, in the moment, how many people do you think picked up on that message? My estimation is a grand total of zero people. Zero people. You know why I say that? Because of the very next account that happens after this. And this is something that is so remarkable about the, the Bible. I hope you're, again, picking up on this in, in this series. Context. Context. Because you see, we have a tendency to look at the account of the healing of the cripple. And then Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then Jesus walking on water. We look at all those events as separate accounts. And by doing that, we fail to see how they're all connected. They're all connected there by a thread of bread, as it were, okay? 
let's not forget our hard saying is about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus, okay? This is all connected. So Jesus feeds the 5,000 and people are freaking out, okay? I'm sure if I was there, I'd be freaking out too. You know, what just happened? How did that happen? You know, I've always said that I I love uh, sleight of hand, quote unquote, magic, and and that I would love to retire a magician someday because I'm just, I'm so fascinated by it. You know, I'm sure if I was there, I'd have been blown away too. That was amazing, Jesus. Do it again. Do it again. That's what I'd be saying, right? Now, notice the people's response to what Jesus did is very similar to that. This is John 6, 14 and 15, moving right along here. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Notice they're stopping short of calling him God. Prophet, they say. They've called him a prophet who under any other circumstance is a messenger of God. So now they're saying, listen to the voice of God. Is that what they're saying? That's not what they're saying at all. Here's what they're saying. Here's here's verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see what's happening here? Instead of them connecting the dots, hmm, Exodus, bread from heaven given to us by God himself. Could this be bread from heaven? If so, could this be God in the flesh walking among us? They're not connecting these dots. Instead, they're saying, make him king make him king. That's what they're saying right now. That's effectively what they're doing, okay? And to be clear, the king that they wanted is not a spiritual one. They weren't looking for a spiritual king. They wanted a military one who could be bigger, stronger, and better than the Roman rule, which everyone in that audience sat under. They're not thinking God among us. They're thinking revolution. Make this guy king, this guy. Now, We have to hop on over to another gospel because I want to point something out to you here. Uh, We see the people saying, make him king, right? What are the disciples saying? Are they being influenced by the crowd, you think? Are they probably getting caught up in all of the hoopla? Flip over to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to pick up at the tail end of the feeding of the 5,000 that's in that's gospel. This is Mark 6, 43 to 45. Mark 6, 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And and here's what I want you to notice. Normally, when we read the Bible, we'd read this verse and think, okay, story's over, next one. And in fact, if if your Bible is like mine, they they break these sections apart. There's even a heading that tells us that that what's about to happen next. And uh, uh, as if there's nothing more to hear about the account that we just read. Okay, but again, let me tell you, the story's not over. Continue with verse 45. Immediately, 45, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. Now stop and chew and slowly digest the word immediately there. Just to give you a little more insight into the word, in in the Greek, it's a word that suggests immediate by force. So there's an element of force here. As if Jesus is, is hustling his disciples to get them into the boat, to get them away from the crowd. Why would he want to do that? Because they are getting caught up in all the make him king talk, okay? The disciples are getting carried away with that, that, that whole make him king parade. And here's how I know that. Hang with me just a few more minutes. Jesus shoves the disciples onto a boat and kicks the boat out to sea. And he goes off alone to pray. I don't know if you're, you're sea-loving people, but I've always had this love-hate relationship with the water, and I sincerely mean it. Love, love, love it. Hate, hate, hate it. 
Okay. Because I've, I've actually, I, you know, maybe I got this from my dad who grew up in Florida and eventually found his way to the Navy. Uh, I've long uh, threatened my, my wife that one day I'm going to buy a boat. One day I keep having to put that off because life, you know, there's so many things that take priority over boat ownership that that, that day keeps getting pushed off. I love the water. I love the beach, but I want you to know that I almost drowned once in the waters of the ocean. I got caught up in an undertow, both my brother and me. And if not for the fact that my mom happened to, to catch that, and then my dad running from the top of the shore, fully clothed, mind you, he wasn't in swim attire, fully clothed, and he jumped into the water to say, I'm convinced that if, that if not for that, we would have perished that day in, in the water. And yet again, how many good swimmers have lost their lives in the, in the uh, and underestimating the power of the water? The disciples now, they get into the boat, and they head out, leaving Jesus behind. At this point, the water's, water starts to flex its muscles a little bit. And look at the next verse. This is beginning in verse 48. Jesus is watching from the shore. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. They're making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Again, chew on the word painfully there. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had the good pleasure of trying to row a boat in rough waters, that's something that most of us probably have not done. But let me tell you something, there's a reason why a rowing machine is an implement at the gym for a workout, because it is not easy. After about five minutes, you'll be winded, you'll be, especially if you're not used to doing it. And that's without the challenges of wind and rain and sea and, and waves and everything like that. Uh, make no mistake about it, the disciples are on the struggle bus here. It's not a stretch to think that some of them might even be thinking, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? Let's read the next part of verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now, that's a funny sentence at first pass. For, for most of my Christian adult life, I, I read the verse like this, that he was, he was, he was walking on the sea and he just decided he wanted to, to pass them by, sort of like... Hey guys, <laughs> I, with all my heart, that's what I wanted the, the verse to say. I really wish it were there. I really wish that that's what it meant, but there's something else that's being said here, okay? Uh, I like to think Jesus is into cracking jokes and perhaps he was, but let me tell you what's happening right here, all right? Go, go, back, go back to the bread. Who is it that gives us life-sustaining bread from heaven? It's God himself. Okay, God himself. Let me read for you from the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8. It says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? How about Job 38, 16? Have you entered into the, into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And there's more. There's more verses with similar, similar language. Psalm 77, 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And remember, when you read language like passing by, that also should conjure up an image. That, remember when, 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 when Moses asked to see the face of God, he hid him behind a rock, and then what did God do? He, he passed by. That's very specific language. That's very specific language. So what are these words telling us? Who is it that walks on the waters? Who tramples the waves of the sea? Who walked in the recesses of the deep? Whose path is through the great waters? Who is that? That is, that is God. Only God does that. 
Only God can do that. That would be God himself walks on the water. Only God can do that. So what's the message Jesus is communicating to his disciples here? Is Jesus a military conqueror? Or what's the message here? Who is Jesus? We're, we're going to go all the way back uh, before the 5,000. Open your eyes, your hearts, and minds, disciples. Jesus is God with us. Here he is walking on the water. Only God does that. This is God in the flesh. Jesus and the Father are one. Now notice, this is what I love about this. Notice how the account in Mark of Jesus walking in the water comes to a conclusion. Mark 6, 51, 52. And he got into the boat with them. The wind had ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. I thought we were talking about walking on water. I thought we finished that account with the loaves. No, he brings it up here again, but their hearts were hardened. Do you remember that? Remember what I was talking about, hard hearts? And that we are so fixated on something that our hearts become hardened to hear whatever else it is that's being thrown at us. Whatever else it's trying to, try to explain to us. Manna from heaven? Walking on water? Military conqueror, right? No. These events are connected, though. Their hearts were hardened because they were thinking about the material. What can I get if Jesus is king? If he can make bread from nothing, if he can fill my stomach, what else can he do for me? What, what gain is there for me? Yeah, let's make him king. Let's make him king. And so Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. You're missing it. This isn't about the material. Let me tell you again, but this time I'm going to tell you on the water. Who alone can do these things? Who alone can do these things? He starts to clue them in after they arrive at the shore and into the, the next day. Much of the crowd has caught up with them again. And Jesus tells them this. Now we're back in John, John 6, 26 and following. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, meaning, meaning signs affirming who he is, signs of God, okay? But because you ate your fill of the loaves, again, interested more in the material, more than the spiritual. Back to the loaves here, right? So do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And so now finally we're getting to our hard saying here. He goes into a little more detail a few verses down, and now Jesus is making the connection all the way back to Exodus. He's connecting the dots for us. This is John 6, 31 and following. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We're starting to see more and more what bread means. Bread is symbolic. Jesus is saying, in other words, the bread that your ancestors ate was just a pointer. It wasn't the real thing that would sustain them forever. It was a pointer. And in verse 49, Jesus tells them, uh, they ate the bread and they still died, meaning it wasn't the life-giving bread. It was a pointer. Even the bread that I give the 5,000, that was a pointer in and of itself. It's a pointer to something bigger, something greater. And that bigger, greater is Jesus himself. Jesus himself, the bread that he brings is the one that is able to make you never hunger again, okay? And so again, you have to start stretching your mind. What does it mean by hunger? 
Hunger for what? Just food? No. No. This is where Jesus is headed, headed with all this. How, how do you get this bread? How do you get the bread that makes me never hunger again? You have to start again, not thinking in terms of, of my stomach and I feel hungry and I can't wait till 12 o'clock because I can get in the, the lunch line at Luby's. You know, that's not what this verse is talking about. This is, this is hunger, longing, satisfaction, belonging, hunger for those things. How do you get bread that will cause you to never hunger, never long for anything because you're perfectly content, perfectly satisfied, perfectly fulfilled? Someone tell me, who is the only one who is perfectly content, doesn't need anything, is in perfect fellowship with himself, perfectly fulfilled without any need of any kind, lives eternally, is all-powerful, all-knowing, lacking nothing? Who am I describing? God. <laughs> well, Jesus, yes. God, you know, they're chapter five, <laughs> one and the same. But again, when we think of God, God didn't create us because he was lonely. God didn't create us because he, he was in need of something or lacking something. He was already perfectly fulfilled in perfect fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Didn't need anything else. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He needs, he needs nothing. He never hungers. He never hungers, okay? How can we never lack anything again? Well, we have to be in union with him. We have to be in union with him, with the creator, the maker, the life giver, the stainer. If we are in union with him, then and only then can we begin to know that genuine fulfillment. That's the only way. That's the only way. Here's, here's, here's how we can sum up everything that Jesus has been pushing us toward through this text. Okay? To believe in Christ is not just to believe what he says and believe what he did and to acknowledge his good teaching. It is to be united with him by faith and even participate in his life, to participate in his life. You see, God's intention uh, isn't just to make you an all-around better person. It's his desire to conform you conform you into the likeness, to make you more like Jesus. You might say he desires for you not to be passive with your relationship with Jesus, but he wants you to ingest him. He wants you to ingest him, consume him. When we talk about being united with him, he means that close, like you're consuming him. And so when you think about consuming Jesus, when you think about intimacy with Christ, union with Christ, it's not enough to just say, I want you to be near him, I want you to be next to him. I want, I want you to be in and out and through and around and, and, and may he ingest in you and then come out your pores and, and everything. In, out, and through. That's what union in Christ means. And so when Jesus says, you know, eat of my flesh and, and drink of my blood, he means that close so that you are in union with Christ. Again, so Jesus makes this connection to bread to give us this powerful metaphor, which basically tells us that to share in the life of God, to live eternally with God, that is granted to those who come to Jesus in faith and who are conformed to him, that have him inside and, and oozing out of him. And, and now we can make the connection. Now we can make the connection to communion, okay? Because what are we proclaiming in communion? It's not just that, yes, that Christ suffered, though he did that, but it's Christ in us, Christ through us, Christ all around us that we're being conformed in his likeness because of the sacrifice that he made, which would not be possible if not for his work on our behalf. 
And so again, it's Christ in us, through us, around us, and not good enough, not good enough to say, I'm going to cozy up next to him. I'm going to be near him. No, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more intimate than that. And I don't know if you've ever had this, again, if it's just me, I'm about to say something that's pretty awful, but have you ever been, a, have you ever been around a, a newborn and you, and you just snuggle up to that newborn and, and you want to smell the newborn and you just want to, it's like, mm, I could eat you. There you go. There's something, there's something else in there that makes you just want to say, I, it, just to be near you is not enough. And this is what Christ is calling us into, not, not to just be near but in, out, around, through, so that, so that you, you take him in and, and you literally, he spills out of you. Union with Christ. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And, and that's what he means by eat the flesh and drink of his blood, which includes partaking in his suffering too. That's the connection that he's already alluding to at this point in, the, in, the, in, in John chapter six. It's still early on. To partake in Jesus, to experience Jesus means to be conformed in his likeness, including and especially through his suffering. And so again, I can't help but think of all the prayer requests that were mentioned this morning. And, and, and whatever it is that you may be struggling through, remember, that doesn't happen in vain. You, in those moments, you are partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. You're being conformed in his likeness, even and especially through suffering. God the Father was most glorified in Jesus through his suffering. And so it should be no surprise that when we encounter suffering too, that we're being conformed to his likeness too. We're participating in eating the flesh and drinking the blood of, of Jesus. It is a metaphor, don't get me wrong. And that's what Jesus clearly said. Not literally, but that close, that intimate, that at union with Christ, okay? Gosh, I got through it. I thought I maybe was gonna have to split this up into two weeks, but... What, do you have any questions, thoughts, or comments about any of that? I know that was a lot. And again, you have to sometimes go back even all the way to the Old Testament to, to grab a hold of it. Any thoughts, comments, questions, anything? Yes, Rhoda. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Rhoda said that was beautiful. But again, I, I wish I could take credit for that. But it's, uh, it's the, be the beauty is the word of God. It really is. And, I, and I, I can't get over it. I cannot get over it. How, how only God could do this. Only God could tie these threads over centuries and make it make sense. Uh, and so again, marvel at the word of God. That is, it's truly amazing. It truly is amazing. Yes, Dean. Just quickly, the, I think the atmosphere, when you see how excited they were at the beach when he got them out there, notice it's on the fourth watch at night. Mm -hmm. It's the middle of the it's night. It's the middle of the night, yeah. And when he gets there, the wind ceases. Yeah. It's this quiet, you know how moments at night are long? Yes. Dean is, is, is talking about the actual, you know, on the, on the waters themselves. And again, we could, we could spend a whole hour just talking about that. And again, to, to be at union with Christ is to, to, is to realize that when, when, when Jesus enters your life, uh, it, it's, a total, it's a total overtaking, inside and out. And so even, even in the midst of a storm, uh, what, what, does that, what does that bring? What does that do for the believer? It settles. It settles even in the midst of a storm. You know, again, I can say we spent a whole hour on that. But again, even that has to do with realizing who, who Jesus is, God himself, and to be at union with him is the leveling field. It's the leveling, leveling plane that Jesus means peace. And again, not, not uh, I'm never going to have troubles, peace, but a peace that is not of this world. You know, it's a peace that passes all understanding. Someone else. Yeah, Dave. When you were first talking about 
some sacrifices also. Well, yeah, uh, Dave is talking about sacrifices. Weren't there certain sacrifices from the Old Testament that people were allowed to eat? Yeah, it was, but it's generally the priests. Uh, uh, and again, gosh, I'm reading through Leviticus right now. And so, and sometimes it's painful going through all the regulations and, and who can do what and what's it for and what you're supposed to dispose and what you can eat. Uh, there, there, there perhaps is a tie in there. Uh, I think it is, again, symbolic, metaphorical. Even, uh, and again, because everything that Jesus, everything that the Lord was talking about in the Old Testament was somehow a whisper of what we would know in the New Testament, in the New Testament revealed. Uh, so every, every bit of that, every, th every thread, there's a thread that runs constantly through the Bible and it's, and it's Jesus. So even when you read things like that in the Old Testament, it should be, how does this show me Jesus? How does this show me Jesus? And it's no accident that he uses language like that. Eat, drink. It's a thread that runs all the way through the Bible. Someone else? Yes, sir. Remind me of your name again. I know. Congratulations, by the way. I know you all are here with a yeah. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well played. Well played. You break bread when you have. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. You said something that I, I really want you all to key in on. And, and when he said bread, I think you said bread is knowledge. And that's exactly right. Because again, it, br bread, even in the Old Testament, symbolically used throughout the Bible, is not bread for the sake of bread. It's always pointing to something. And ultimately, it points to the knowledge of, of who Jesus is. He is the life giver, the sustainer. And so, yes, as, as you're, you're saying there, it's no accident that, that even we, we live this out symbolically as a Christian. Anytime you, you uh, uh, um, engage in hospitality and have people over to your home and break bread together, what you're doing there is something symbolic. It's something deeper meaning than just eating together. There's something spiritual. There's a spiritual component about there where you are united in Jesus Christ. And again, we're, we're tying back into that metaphor, uh, even though sometimes we don't realize it. And so I would, I would, I would then challenge you to, the, to that. Next time you have someone over for, your, for, for dinner or for, for lunch or, sh or sharing a meal, breaking bed to get, bread together, realize the, the metaphor that you're making and, and emphasizing and, 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 uh, and proclaiming once again is that you and I together, we share in the bread of life. And the bread of life is what sustains us, keeps us, and, and allows us to, to, to do this here together. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thought. Thank you for sharing that with us. Anyone else? Okay, I'm going to have to cut it short because I have to be uh, involved in the service today. So I don't want to be late for that. So let me close this in a word of prayer. And then uh, uh, if you have anything that's still out in terms of questions, feel free to send them to me. I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to wrestle through those things with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the bread that you've given us, not just to keep our stomachs full, but to, to bring us in union with Christ and to help us to uh, always, always never forget that, never forget that, uh, that is the union with Christ that makes us right uh, with you to give us life, life eternal, and, uh, and help us to, to be the first to want to leave this place proclaiming it from the rooftops. Uh, go with us now. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.